Goldie and Bendy. Hello and welcome to the podcast they couldn't stop. Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art. I'm Valdemar Janusztak, art critic of the Sunday Times. Although when people are in a hurry, that tends to get boiled down to Waldy. And I'm joined, as always, by a man of international mystery. An unknowable figure in the art world, whom some call the Shadow, and others call Bendy. He came into the world as Bendor Grosvenor. But what does that really mean? What are we dealing with here? Bendy, who actually are you? I don't know. I've been trying to work it out. And if you can uh, ever answer that question, please let me know. But you're so kind to me, Waldy. And this week, I have to remind you yet again that I am merely a bit part in your universe. In fact, I think this week I'm going to be the ear to your Van Gogh. Um, see, I threw you there, didn't I? But uh, I'm, I'm glad that's cleared up. Uh, I'm Van Gogh and you're the ear. Um, it's, good, it's good to get these small existential problems out of the way quickly, as we've got plenty of big ones coming up. Because in this podcast, we're going to be diving nervously into the world of fakes and forgeries. Yes, the unreal is on the way. Also, after the major success of last week's investigation into the role of the donkey in art, we're returning to the animal kingdom to look at fish. And don't forget, everything we talk about, all the pictures, all the clips, it's all illustrated and illuminated on the podcast pages of zczfilms.com, a gold mine of information. But first, fakes and forgeries. Now, Bendy, if that really is you I'm talking to, uh, you must know a lot about fakes uh, from your art dealer days, right? I mean, you used to work with Philip Mould. You were on that programme, Fake or Fortune. So I presume you were always on the lookout for forgeries, right? Yeah, and now I'm working with you. I mean, it's a perfect topic for us, isn't it? A couple of old frauds. Um, but uh, yeah, the TV show, Fake or Fortune, we always had to get a, a couple of uh, good fakes in there to balance things out. I think the best one we had was... Uh, a very obviously fake uh, picture by Chagall, purporting to be by Chagall, which it got into the hands of the Chagall committee. I don't know if you remember this. And they decided uh. that because it was a fake that under French law, they could destroy it. <laughs> and the poor fellow who paid about 100,000 quid for this picture, um, I don't know if he ever got it back because I, I think French law is pretty clear on this point that if something is mm, full, it can be destroyed. And, I, you know, I don't entirely disagree. I think... Probably that should be the fate of all fakes, that they should be destroyed for having tricked us. What do you think? Well, I think it's all very ambiguous, the truth of it, uh, because if it's a really, really good fake, I mean, I ask myself a very important question, which is just because the signature on it is different. If the picture is really good, does that mean that um, somehow it has no value just because the person supposed to have made it didn't make it? Or should we not just be taking these things on face value? You know, this is what it is. It looks great. What's wrong with that? Does it really matter who made it? I, I tend to feel a bit like that. Yeah, I suppose it's, it depends on what part of the process you kind of stop the clock, doesn't it? Because I agree, one good artist paying homage to another one uh, can be a, a wonderful creative exercise and can be you know nice to look at. But the problem is that these things tend to get in the sausage factory of crime, don't they? And then a middleman gets yeah. involved. Um, and somewhere along the line, a fraud is committed and somebody loses often lots of money. And they also lose something, I think, slightly more important, which is the sort of an artistic innocence um, because they're tricked. We're all tricked by these things. And 
often that is their ultimate purpose. And uh, for me, art history is is um, all about doing justice to an artist. The, the reason I, I like to find works that have been lost over the centuries is because I think it's... Um, it's about you know rehabilitating that painting and the work of the artist, and it goes in the other direction too. That sometimes you see a, a work that is wrongly attributed to an artist, which doesn't do them justice because it's a bad one. And uh, I think it's just as important to root all those out. So um, I'm slightly less ambiguous than you on the whole fake mm. question for that reason. But broadly speaking, you see, the the trouble is that sometimes people come to conclusions about pictures that that are wrong. I mean, there are plenty of examples of pictures that were deemed to be right, which turned out not to be right, and vice versa. Because ultimately, these things are unprovable. I mean, I'm sure you must have had instances in your own career. I mean, if you work with Philip Mould, if you did Fake or Fortune, there must have been instances where you were absolutely convinced that something was right. And then somebody else comes along and says, no, it isn't. And because there's no real way of proving it, you're sort of stuck with this middle ground where the authenticity of the picture sort of gets in the way, really, of, of, of its quality. Yeah, no, I, that happens to me all the time. You know, things that I, I claim by someone can't be proved. But you always have to believe your first instinct. I mean, you always have to believe what you, you conclude yourself. It doesn't really matter if you can't persuade someone else. But I think it's a totally different question when someone has, has deliberately tried to trick you, and usually for money. Um, and we might come on to some of the more famous cases um, later on in the programme. But um, so, some some fakers I do admire for their, their intrinsic skill, but I... I very rarely want to shake their hand and pat them on the back. Well, you see, I, I'm, I'm in a difficult position because I wouldn't name amongst my friends probably Britain's greatest ever forger, Sean Greenhouse, right? I, I ghosted um, his memoirs. I've known him for many years now. I, frankly, I love the man. And one of the reasons I love him is because he took such evident pleasure in fooling the art world, including me, of <laughs> course. Now... The reason people like forgers is because the art world comes across as one thing, doesn't it? It's haughty, it's yeah. full of so-called experts with quotation yeah. marks around it. Um, there are these people who present themselves as these fountains of all knowledge. So, of course, everybody loves it when some uneducated oik from Bolton, <laughs> which is what they thought Sean Greenarch was, of course, it's not true, he's nothing of the sort, but that's how the image came across. Mm. Um, fools the British Museum and fools the Chicago Art Institute and fools loads of experts and fools Valdemar and Ustrak. They loved it. And, you know, who doesn't love an outlaw? You know, we all love an outlaw. And given the room there is in this for ambiguity, given the fact that there's not a single person on earth that can point to every single image we've ever made and say that's real and that isn't real, Given that ambiguity, there's space, I think, for this outlaw forger character to exist and, and to be loved on one level. I mean, you've got to remember that if stuff costs as much as it costs now, you know, the obscene, ridiculous, unworldly prices that things fetch, you know, that in itself is a crime, I think. It's a sort of crime against civilization. Yeah. So we're weighing one crime up against another. If, if someone's passing something off and it manages to get bought for millions of quid i can see why some people like that yes and we should remember of course that um, michelangelo perhaps the greatest artist who ever lived in the western world uh, his first sale i think was a forgery he, he tried to fake up a, 
an antique statue. Um, and that landed him his first patron. I think actually fakers do serve a useful purpose. I'm slightly contradicting myself here. Um, they're like a vaccine, aren't they? You, you need to introduce a little bit of fake something in order to trigger the system so that we're able to find fakes in the future. Um, and, and people like Sean Greenhouse, I think, do actually have a, a public role in that sense. Um, and one of the most uh, famous recent examples, and this ties in with your 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 outrage over the, the money side of the modern art market, um, is uh, the Nerdler Gallery in New York, which was you know one of the great mainstays of the US art market. It had been going for 150 years, and it shut abruptly in 2011 um, after it was discovered that it had been selling fakes for about 15 years. Um, I think it's something about uh, an estimated $100 million worth of, of artworks by people like uh, Rothko, uh, Robert Motherwell and Jackson Pollock. And it turned out they'd all been made uh, in a garage uh, in Queens, New York, by a Chinese artist called Pei Shen Qian. And he was paid around $9,000 for each one. And some of these works were sold for up to $17 million. Now, I think that does reflect an outrage of the why these works were, were so um, highly valued. And and when experts looked at these paintings in isolation after it was realized that they, they weren't by Rothko and Pollock, the scales fell from their eyes and they said, well, clearly they're rubbish. And the point is that for the decade or so in which they were considered to be masterpieces and valuable, nobody really looked at them. They mm. just looked at what they were supposed to be. They, were, they weren't serving a purpose as artworks. They were serving a purpose as brands, which said about the collector, look how rich I am. Mm. And we but should be grateful to the forger for that. Absolutely right. And see, this is the thing about Sean Greenhouse. As I said, I know him really well now. And if you go into a museum with Sean Greenhouse, he will immediately point out to you the inconsistencies and things he comes across. Why? Because he knows more about it than the people working there. This is the thing, to become a really great forger, you have to be so skilled in such a variety of, of, of things. Um, and you have to just know, you know, so much more than the experts. I mean, the people who bought stuff from Sean Greenhouse, frankly, they should have have their jobs replaced by him because he would never have been fooled the way they were. You know the story of how he got me, don't you, with the Gogan? Uh, one of my favorite tales, but let's tell everybody again. <laughs> <laughs> um, it reflects wonderfully on me, yes. Um, so I was making a big film about Gauguin, and there was an exhibition in the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam, you know, the home of Van Gogh. It was a big show about Van Gogh and Gauguin. And in this show were various new sculptures by Gauguin that had been found relatively recently, including this small statue of a fawn, which had been bought for hundreds of thousands of dollars by the Chicago Art Institute. It was on show at the Van Gogh Museum. And I'm doing this film about Gauguin. This wonderful little thing comes up. So, so there's a scene in my Gauguin biography where I'm standing next to it saying, and of course, this is such an interesting work. Um, this seems to take Gauguin's earth in a new direction, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> it's who knew that he did this? It expands our knowledge of him, blah, blah, blah. So five years later, I, you know, I opened the newspaper and there it is. Um, Sean Greenhouse caught in Bolton making these, these portraits. And see, what's interesting, see, Sean told me later that when he was making this uh, Gauguin form, he dropped it before he finished it. And so it broke in half, right? And so he glued it back together with Araldite and then finished it. And he said, how could anybody have bought this when clearly it had been worked on after the join was fixed with Araldite. This is the kind of thing I mean, is that experts look at things in a certain way with a preconceived yeah. idea, yeah. but they don't know the reality of making. And you see, that is what I have learned most from, from reading Sean's words and things. 
the making of things is a yeah. different business from from the looking at them that we that we do yeah. you know we look at the finished image well we have no real idea of how it got there yes. you know we don't really know what it takes to make a, a renaissance bronze or a brooch from the middle ages but he does and it's that excitement in, in the process of making that he conveyed to me and it's, it's one of the reasons i love the man yeah yeah no you express it very well and i'm glad good things came out of the fact that you got rumbled um <laughs> and you've been very honest and open about it and, and not all people who are fooled by these things are and i wanted to just refer you to the who i think is actually probably the greatest forger who ever lived um i can't name them because all these things are still sub judice but recently there was a, a series of old master fakes that were revealed to be forgeries um which have been sold for many millions of dollars uh, including a France house, a Parmigianino, and these paintings were, were on display in the major museums of the world. The France house was declared a national treasure by the Louvre, no less, and they even tried to buy it. Um, and the Parmigianino was displayed in the Metropolitan Museum in New York. Now, both of these works happened to be sold by Sotheby's in New York uh, on the back of a, a whole litany of experts uh, saying these were these were period works. And uh, when Sotheby's uh, realized that something might be awry, they very swiftly and very properly uh, refunded all the money. Now, that's great. But the, as far as I know, there's been no hint of any contrition or any analysis of systems that went awry from either the Met or the Louvre. And mm. the same people who gave the thumbs up to these paintings are still being sought out as experts to give the thumbs up to other paintings by House and so on. So we need a reckoning, I think, still. Well, that's exactly my point. So you know who the forger is, do you, Bendor? Um, I have an idea. And you're not going to tell everybody? No, because um, they haven't admitted it. Um, and there's various cases and investigations ongoing. Uh -huh. um, and of course, I might be wrong. Yeah. So we should be careful. It's definitely not Sean. I'm sure of that. No. But uh, sh uh, there is a there is a, a famous, I mean, this is this is out there, so I can go on about it. Um, Sean has claimed to be the maker of um, the, this Leonardo da Vinci um, painting called the La Bella Principessa, which has been mm. doing the rounds a bit. It's actually a, a sort of gouache on vellum of a Milanese princess of the of the early 16th century. And um, Sean reckons that he did it when he was a young man, and that um, it's actually a girl called Sally who used to work in the co-op mm -hmm. um, where he was working at the time. So it wasn't really La Bella Principessa. Mm -hmm. um, but there is a lot of discussion about it. I mean, most Leonardo authorities agree that it's not right. I certainly am 100% sure it isn't, but it's it's been at some point it's it's been on the market for 150 million dollars. You know, I mean that's an awful lot of, of of money to be touting about for something that may or may not be you know as as stated. I mean, we obviously we have to tread carefully in what we say here, but uh, this is it. I mean, Sean would would tell you that he's even if he didn't paint it, I reckon he's the kind of person who would stand up and say he did just to cast doubts on the price tag because he doesn't agree with it. You know what I mean? Yes. And we do have to be slightly careful, don't we, of taking the word of forgers at face value because they have uh, demonstrated their ability to mislead. That's part of their success. So we must we must take things with a pinch of salt. I, I should also say that, you know, those involved in, in selling many of these fakes have, have, have not realised their fakes until it was too late. And, and we can't cast aspersions on too many people in the system. Of course not. And you're 100% right about not trusting fakers i mean sean if you're listening to this podcast can i just say straight away that i never believe you totally about anything you say um this is it's a gene isn't it these guys have a gene in them which allows them to be 
devious and to take on the system and to be the outlaw Sean Greenhouse. And I've looked him in the eye sometimes and asked him something and he's given me an answer and I just don't, I don't know, I just, I just don't buy it. You know, he's, he's a slippery being and he's done slippery things. Um, but oh, I, I can't help but love him for it, you know, I mean, the world needs more people with that sort of talent. Yes, yes. Um, you, you've, in this series, in this discussion, you've persuaded me actually of, of the greater merits of the forger in the system. Um, and I just want to finish by saying that one of the pictures that Sean mentions in his book about creating, uh, he doesn't say it explicitly, but he basically hints very strongly that he made a Rembrandt self-portrait, which uh, was discovered at auction in, I think, Sirencester for about two million pounds it made. Uh, a new discovery, sold as 19th century, I think. And it subsequently ended up in the Getty Museum in, in Los Angeles for about $30 million. Now, I don't believe him, but mm. he did make us all think twice and look more carefully at new discoveries. So, so that is, that's good, isn't it? I think it is good. And I think that, that we shouldn't trust Sean, although, hello, Sean, um, we, we, we can love him, I think. Mm -hmm. But it is important to to have someone waving a red flag and saying beware you know buyer beware that that's the whole point and if it stops the art market careering ever crazily upwards into yet more ridiculous prices um all of which are attached to this sense of an authenticity of a, of a, of a signature then i'm all for it by the way the uh, pictures you talk about the Parmigianino, the france house um i mean we're going to put those up on the zcz.com podcast page because they're so damn good mm. i find it hard to, to doubt them i mean this is the thing really good forgers are really good aren't they bendy yeah yeah anyway time to move on from something slippery to something even more slippery um now some of you listening to bendy there talking about forgeries you're probably thinking is that really him well let me put you out of your misery it definitely was and how do i know for sure well, because the next bit of the podcast is a voyage to the heartland of the Bendy experience. This is 100% pure Bendy. Couldn't be purer. Bendel Grover had a farm. E-I-E-I-O Yes, forget the archers, folks. This is where the real agricultural action is. We're back with the animal kingdom, back on Bendy's farm. Um, so, Bender, everybody loved the donkeys bit last week. And they loved it because, oh, everybody loves donkeys, of course. But also, I think, because, you know, the animal kingdom genuinely has played this really significant role in art. It's, it is one of the recurring big stories. So that's why this week we've gone, uh, we stayed in the animal kingdom and we've gone for fish, the fish in art. Now, I imagine up there in your Scottish castle, you do what? You do a lot of what? Trout fishing or trout tickling what is it you do up there with the fish it's a lovely jingle you've made but, but for reasons of accuracy i should point out that it's actually my wife's farm it's not mine at all and, and i don't like fishing do you like fishing i've got terribly impatient with those bloody knots i i've tried it a few times and i get in a terrible tangle and i can't sit still anyway so fishing is not really for me oh, do you really? like it? I, I had you down I've, I've never fished um i love eating fish i love looking at fish but uh, no, I can't say I've ever tried it. I've, I, see, I, had, I thought you, uh, at the end of this discussion, you were going to say to me, Waldy, I'm going to share the joys of fishing with you. We'll come up here to the farm, and to, to the castle, and we'll do a we'll bit, of, bit of trout tickling together in the <laughs> Scottish Highlands. I was looking forward to that. Yeah. Well, you're more than welcome to come up any time, but I prefer the Russian type of fishing, which is, I think involves hand grenades. <laughs> 
Anyway, we have uh, very, very democratically got together a list of um, the five finest appearances of the fish in art. Um, it's very democratic because I've chosen four of them, Bendy's chosen the other one. Uh, and I believe even in those circumstances, we're managing to have an argument here because um, for some absurd reason, uh, you have managed to put Haim Soutine's Still Life with a Herring from 1916 at the bottom of the list. I can't believe that, Bendy. Tell me about it. Well, I was hoping you were going to tell me about it to try and sell it to me. It just looks like a, a plate of rather dull herring to me, and I don't like herring. So I, I miss the significance of this painting uh, entirely, and that's why it's in fifth place. <sighs> what can I say? Well, first of all, it's not just a plate of herring. I mean, look, look at it again properly. You've got three herrings, right? And what, what, what's next to the herrings on either side? A knife and a fork. It's not a knife and a fork. It is two forks. And oh. the way they are painted makes them look like claws or human hands. So there's an immediate air of desperation about it. Um, and look at the date, 1916. What was happening in 1916? The First World War was happening. Starvation was happening. Poverty was happening. So this is a picture about deprivation, about the absence of luxuries and the absence of things. So the herrings are, 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 are miserable little skeletal fish, and these claw-like forks are reaching towards them. And it's a typical bit of Soutine, who I think is one of the great 20th century painters, massively underestimated, and who, who really put it out there, you know? I mean, he's what they call an expressionist, right? And I mean, you love expressionism, don't you, Bendy? I know you do. Um, sometimes. In this instance, I'm going to try and persuade you. I'm trying to get you to say something um, so that I don't keep talking all the time because I have so much to say about this. Good, I don't. It's, it's just a plate of fish. Listen, let me tell you a great Soutine story, right? Mm -hmm. He was born in a Jewish ghetto in Vitebsk, which is now in Belarus. Um, and as you know, Jewish artists, well, Jews, Jews are not supposed to make art, right? You, you know the Ten Commandments. You're a, you're a good Christian figure. You know that the Third Commandment says, thou shalt not make any graven image of anything that is on the earth or in the sea below. In other words, don't make art, right? Mm -hmm. That's where iconoclasm happens. Mm -hmm. That's where all the Protestants beat up all the images of Christ in the, uh, in the Middle Ages. So that's why you've got no art in synagogues. You go to a synagogue, there's no art. It's just writing. That's why there's no art in Islamic mosques, or no figurative art, because mm -hmm. there's a prescription against it in the Ten Commandments. So making art for, for Jews was a transgression. And that's why there are no great Jewish artists until, what, the end of the 20th century, Pizarro? It's a very loaded thing to have done. And Soutine came from this very religious shtetl in, in Belarus, but he was always drawing. He loved doing it. And one day, the sons of the rabbi caught him drawing in a field in, in Vitebsk, and they beat him up. They almost killed him, beat him to a pulp. So his mother sued the village elders and sued the rabbi for this um, damage and, and hurt they'd inflicted on her son. She won the case, and with the money, she sent him to art school. Oh, that's lovely. Isn't that wonderful? It's like a parable. Yeah. So he went, ended up in Paris. He was a friend of, very close friend of Modigliani, um, moved in the same circle as, as Picasso, and was famous for his decrepitude. I mean, this is what he brought to the storyline this impoverished guy been beaten up, nearly killed for art, who shows it in every brushstroke. You know, he lets it all hang out. And I think he's massively underestimated. And that's why I would have put him nearer the top of this list, but you put him at the bottom. But if I was putting something near the bottom, see, I would probably put 
this William Blake image of a fish that you chose. So tell us about that because it's joint fifth. Let's call it that joint fifth, joint bottom. Yes. Okay. Although you've done such a good job of, of um, shaming me on on Soutine's uh, life and art, that I, I, I concede he should go up into fourth. This this will be in fifth. Then it's a drawing uh, watercolor by William Blake done in about 1797. Uh, he was commissioned to illustrate um, a poem by uh, someone called Thomas Gray, which was called "Ode on the Death of a Favorite Cat Drowned in a Tub of Goldfish." And the cat in question, this is dear to all our hearts, the cat in question was called Selima, and it belonged to uh, Horace Walpole, who is a sort of mm. the, the English equivalent of George Virtue. Um, he, he charts, he's an early art historian uh, in the mid-18th century and charts the life of British artists. And his cat died, very tragically, in a goldfish bowl um, in 1747. And in fact, the, the bowl still exists at uh, Horace Walpole's house, Strawberry Hill. You can go and visit it, and there's a little plaque and everything. Um, so um, this uh, this uh, set of uh, drawings was done by William Blake in order to illustrate the poem. Um, and what we can see here is the cat peering down at the fishes in the water, um, eyeing them up, ready for a tasty snack and not knowing what uh, lies, what his tragic fate will be. And the fish look rather sort of, um, they're a little bit cartoony and they're quite innocent and they've got little figures on their fins who I think are sirens uh, drawing the the cat in and it is not a great work of art i have to concede that but you see that's the problem with fish in art isn't it they they the fish are quite blank they don't have much character or expression so you've got to kind of ladle it on with a trowel if you're an artist um, and that i think is what william blake has done here i disagree with pretty much every single word there uh, <laughs> Bendor. um fish are not characterless they're full of character as we have seen already and we will see in the future as we go higher up the list but um so are you telling me that Horace Walpole's cat drowned in a goldfish bowl? Yeah, I was trying to get the fish and it leapt in and couldn't get out again. And the poem, um, it's a very long poem, don't worry, I'm not going to read it all out, but it, um, it just warns you that, um, you know, a fish may look, look gold and glistening. And it, it steals Shakespeare's famous line that, that all that glistens is not gold. So it's a morality tale. It's a... Uh, for a start, the cat must have been incredibly stupid. How can a cat drown in a goldfish bowl? But putting that aside, I mean, what a ridiculous thing to write a poem about to start with. I mean, Thomas Gray, of all people, to write an ode to, to a cat in a goldfish bowl. That's the 18th already... century. They didn't have much else to do. <laughs> well, clearly not. And neither did Blake. I mean, he's, this isn't just one illustration. He did a bunch of them, didn't he, for the same poem. I mean, you would have thought people had um, had better things to do. This is this 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 terrible enlightenment genre, the mock heroic, isn't it? I mean, the, the rape of the lock. Pope is the same, isn't it? It's all about the stealing of a lock of hair, as if the end of the world depended on it. I, I, don't, I think this should be disqualified from the list, and I'll tell you why. I don't think it should even be here because it's more about the cat than it is about the goldfish, isn't it? I mean, this is all about this silly cat who drowns, and the poor goldfish. Its only role is is to be gold um, and to, to give. Uh, you know, give Thomas Gray an opening for his quotation from Shakespeare. I mean, we learn nothing about fish from this, nothing at all. Yeah, I think we're discovering our disagreement about fish in general. I don't really <laughs> like eating them, yet alone catching them. So I'm always looking at fish to be the butt of the joke in the painting. Well, uh, let's move on quickly in that case. Um, uh, listeners, if you want to look at a pale, 
minnow of a goldfish um, in a pale watercolour that doesn't deserve to be on anybody's list, let alone the top five fish in art, uh, <laughs> please uh, go to zzzfilms.com where you will see what Bendor has inflicted upon you. I'm, um, just trying to, we... I'm just trying to stop you doing this to me again. We can't have, we can't have groves as animals on the podcast every week. <laughs> I'm sabotaging it. Okay, um, well, uh, let's move on. Let's move on to a proper fish. I mean, a, a fish with presence, a great big fish, because number three in the list is um, possibly um, the greatest fish ever to appear uh, in a Baroque church. Um, and it's from, um, I can't say I've ever actually seen it, but I, I love the photographs of it. And it's a, it's a Baroque pulpit from a, a small village in Poland made in, um, in the 1750s, they reckon. And what it is, is, uh, well, you describe it, Bendor. Go on, I know what it is. You, you describe it, it'll, it'll feel fresher. <laughs> it looks like, you know, the, there's that kid's character, Barney the Dinosaur. <laughs> It yes. looks like that. It's the most extraordinary bit of decorative art I think I've ever seen. Um, the pulpit is what, about a story high? And it's the mouth of a whale open. And, and I suppose the poor priest climbs up this, this tail of the whale up the steps inside and emerges like, like Jonah, I presume, is the analogy, and spews forth his um, religious wisdom on, on the poor unsuspecting congregation below. I think that's exactly it. Of course, we should immediately own up to the fact that the whales are not fish, they're mammals. We do know this, but oh, back in the oh 1750s, yes. that would have been still unclear in the small villages of Poland. Um, and, and, and in fact, most of the, if you see Jonah and the whale, most of the um, paintings of it are very ambiguous about the fishy creature from which he emerges. I mean, even up on the Sistine ceiling, you know, the prophet Jonah's on the Sistine ceiling, right? And that is a giant trout that he's come out of. It is not um, some kind of whale or sea monster. Yeah, but isn't this charming? So it is massive. It's a massive, great clunking pulpit, you know, five times bigger than the priest. And out he comes in the, you know, the mouth of the whale and delivers his sermon about redemption. And of course, you know why the story of Jonah and the whale became this important story in, in, in sort of clerical history. You know, you know why it's got that power, don't you? Uh, no. Is it something about indigestion? It goes beyond indigestion. It goes to the death of Jesus. So, so Jesus Christ was dead for three days and then he rose again. It's called Easter, Bendor. Most yeah. art historians know, know a little bit about it. Um, so it's all about Jesus the Saviour and about redemption. So the priest comes out in the role of Jonah. I mean, he is, as it were, prefiguring the, uh, the rising of Christ from the dead, which gives it more and more power. And remember, this is a village church, tiny place in Poland. And, and you know, sermons are the occasion when you, when you go on the pulpit and you really rock the boat. You know, even I remember the sermons I used to hear as a kid when I was a Polish boarding school run by priests. You know, it was all about thunder and death and hell and what's going to happen to you if you tell a lie. You know, um, so oh, delivered from the mouth of a giant fish in a small Polish church. Oh, I can imagine this being so effective. Um, it's at number three in the list, but heavens, maybe we should move it up a bit. Do you, do you really think you're so you're a good Polish Catholic? Do you, do you really think people would have taken it seriously and been impressed, or would they have just sort of sat there giggling, thinking this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen? That's just the most ridiculous comment I've ever heard. Of course, they took it seriously. I mean, what remember, we don't what we know now, they didn't know then. And I mean, even when I was a kid growing up, I believed in the sermons that I was preached. You know, I believed in hell, I believed in fire and brimstone. Of course, they believed it. It's not the most realistic of. <laughs> 
this shoulder. I'll give it that. It's like a kid's playground. <laughs> but um, I'm sure it was very effective. I think it's wonderful. I'm going to go there and find it. I'm going to see it. It's going to go on the list of places that you and I have to visit, Vendor. Okay. Come on, a giant fish yeah. pulpit. It's, so, it's got to be worth number three. All right, I agree. But final question, is it is it somewhere very far away from the sea in Poland where people would not have known what anything fishy looked like? Yes, it is. It's near the Czech border, so right down ah. in southern Silesia. So it's a long way away from the sea. It's, it's near the mountains. So okay. there would have not been much opportunity to um, to draw I I informative parallels between real whales and this pulpit. Yeah. Let's move on. Man can spend too long even in a small Polish village. Number two, number two. Now, there's a bit of dispute here, but I'm going to go with you on this. We, we, we've decided um, that the number two should be Chardin's great painting called The Ray, which hangs in the Louvre. It's a wonderful thing. Um, tell us about that then, Bendor. Okay, so this was Chardin's sort of debut painting, wasn't it? This, this got him into the, is it the Académie Française as an artist? And we, it's a sort of rather conventional still life in some ways with um, a stingray hung up on the wall and, and oysters and other dead fish lying around, a jug uh, and a knife and a fork. But uh, enlivening the scene is a cat, uh, which looks, I think, is frightened by one of the fish. And um, I think this reinforces why I was right to choose uh, William Blake's picture of a cat and a fish, because you, no matter how exciting looking or tasty looking the fish is, uh, to make a, a fish painting come alive, it always needs a cat. Bendor. You pay me for this kind of wisdom, well. You, you call me. You, you call yourself an art historian, do you? Is, is that right? No. Well, I, my art history knowledge is, as you may have guessed, quite selective. <laughs> <laughs> Deary me! Look, um, this great Chardin is completely unlike any other still life that had come before it. It does indeed feature a ray or skate, as I think we, we call them in England, um, hanging in the middle. But quite deliberately, this strange fish, if you've seen a ray, you know they're weird looking, is stretched out on a hook and hanging there in the manner of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, it's a well-known fact about this picture that it refers to Rembrandt's famous still life of the carcass of an ox, you know, the one of the ox hanging there, which also is a kind of stand-in for Jesus. Um, and the first time this picture was actually shown was at the Feast of Corpus Christi, in Paris um, in, in June of 1728. The Corpus Christi is the feast of the body of Jesus Christ. It's the whole thing that happens in the Eucharist where the bread and the wine turns into Jesus or supposedly turns into Jesus. So it's loaded with heavy religious meaning. It's a ghastly thing, this fish. I mean, it's sort of bloody, gory, it's been wounded. And all around it are almost looking like it's implements of torture, the, 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 the saucepan in which it's going to be boiled, knife in which it's been cut up. And the cat, you know, is clearly a malicious presence in this still life. I mean, it's strolling across the oysters. We all know what oysters mean in art. They've always meant the same things in still lives. They always will. And it's, it's toying with them. So it's, it's an implication of the original sin. Of course it is. What else could it be? Implication of the original sin and Jesus having to die on the cross to save us. So this is a crucifixion, which doesn't look like a crucifixion, but which is loaded with all the meaning that you had in our Polish pulpit, really, of salvation. Why? Because we are full of original sin. And it's all done in this beautiful, dark, scary, throbby still life with a fish. And why has the ray got this sort of rather vacant grin on it, though? 
that's what rays do. You know, have you, have you ever heard of a, a Jenny Hanover? No. Okay, we'll put up a picture of a Jenny Hanover on the ZCZ.com website. Jenny Hanovers were supposedly the origins of the mermaid. Um, and they were the skeletons of, of rays and skates, which um, malicious uh, fishermen used to toy with and reshape a bit because the skeleton of a ray looks like a human being. What is actually the mouth and the nostrils look like a human face. So the reason why this thing looks so spooky is that it looks like there's a human face on the fish and that it's got outstretched arms. And all that's to do with the intricate sort of skeletal form of a, of a ray. So people used to make these horrible little mannequin things out of the skeletons of, of, of rays, which looked like little demons and stuff and things that frightened kids with them. So there has a whole existence of them. I'll tell you, I'll tell you, you must know this. There's a very famous Jenny Hanover in a painting by Hogarth, Callie Gate. If you look at Callie Gate, there's yeah. a bunch of nuns in the corner. Yeah. What are they doing? Uh, Can you remember Calligate? They're praying around um, uh, a skate, uh, one of these, a uh, Jenny Hanover. Oh, I see. So Hogarth is mocking the religiosity of the French, of French Catholicism. Um, so there's a whole history of the skates, you know, being used that way. It looks like a face, but it's not actually a face. It's the mouth and the nose. Mm. It's, it's ambiguity. Perhaps you're right. Um, I feel like I might throw back a phrase you often quote to me, which is the denarch, you see what you want to see. Um, <laughs> and uh, don't forget that, that this painting has a pair, which is called the buffet, and which is um, a table laden with sort of more food, mainly fruit, with a dog uh, jumping up at it. So um, mm. that one doesn't seem to have quite so much religious meaning, unless you're going to tell me otherwise, and I'm not sure we've got the time for it. We haven't got the time, but of course it's got religious meaning. Or oh, the fruit. What did Eve pick in the Garden of Eden? Fruit from the tree of knowledge. You know, fruit, it's all about this sin, the original sin. Everything in religious art's about the original sin. You know, that's why the oysters are there. But let's leave that for another time. Let's do the oyster in art on some future occasion, Ben, because we are running out of time. We do need to move on. And we, we are moving on very quickly to a picture that isn't so much a picture of fish as a kind of fish orgy. I mean, you could not ask for more fish than there are in this picture by Franz Schneiders. It's an extraordinary thing, Bendor. It's a huge tableau of, of every fish available in uh, Flanders, I think, in the early 17th century. It belongs to the Hermitage uh, in St. Petersburg. It was painted in about 1618. And we've got everything here, haven't we? We've even got seals and salmon and horseshoe crabs and uh, trouts and uh, catfish, lobsters, everything you could possibly wish to see. Um, it's all here in extraordinary detail. And I always think that Snyder's is a rather underrated artist because um, the technique that we see here is just fantastic. Everything is glistening, everything is identifiable. I mean, imagine the smell he had to put up with while he was uh, painting all these dead fish. But uh, Snyder's, you know, he, he worked very closely. He was part of the gang with Rubens, Van Dyck and Jordans. But, but nowadays, I think because he was just a sort of seen as an animal painter, um, he's slightly forgotten. And we only really uh, celebrate the trio of Jordans, Van Dyck and Rubens. And I think that's a little bit unfair. And, and when I look at paintings like this, I think um, that his reputation should be higher. Do you agree with that? I do. I think it's a terrific picture. I mean, I personally, I'd have the Chardin on top. But this is an amazing image. I mean, the skill, the skill he displays here in capturing all these different textures and the different types of 
fish and, and as you say all these other animals that people seem to eat in the 17th century the otters and seals and all that stuff i mean it's it's a disgusting image isn't it i mean if you showed that to a vegetarian you know they'd, they'd throw up <laughs> wouldn't they i mean it, it's terrifying actually it's a terrifying picture yeah but it's it's packed full of of all sorts of uh, meanings and history and this is where i'm going to uh, hopefully slightly redeem myself by <laughs> telling you a little bit more about it and now it it's it's not really obviously religious but i well, we have to recognize that these scenes emerged from a, a tradition in Flanders of still life tableaus like this, which which had at their heart a religious story, often in the background. Uh, and of course, although we don't see in the background here any any obviously religious figures, it's all uh, viewers would have recognized that it's a, it's a sort of reference to people like St. Peter, who, of course, was a fisherman. And, uh, and the very obvious fact that um, fish out of water cannot live just as a christian who is not baptized um is is not uh, saved so that would have been immediately obvious to people and that's why i think snyder's doesn't put anything um very obviously religious in the picture but of course we're dealing with flanders and, and the low countries in the seventh the early 17th century here uh, and that was a time of great uh, commercial prosperity uh, particularly uh, fishing which was a huge part of the industry and what 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 fish in the painting do you think, Waldi, is the one we're supposed to be looking at most? What's the most celebrated fish here? Well, it's it's got to be that huge one at the front, isn't it? I don't know what it is. The one sitting underneath the seal next to the turtle. Um, that one there. Well, I'm going to direct you towards the, the rather shimmering golden-looking basket on the table, which is full of herring. And herring was a mainstay of the economy in that part of the world. Uh, and if you look in the background of the picture you see a particular boat which is called a herring bus. That was a boat that was specifically designed for catching herring. And they were, they were like little mini herring factories. And if you look uh, in front of the herring bus, can you see all the little barrels on the dockside there? Yeah, yeah, barrels, well, yes. In, in the herring bus, they were, uh, they were designed to go to sea for an awfully long time. And they were factories. And you would uh, catch the herring, sort them, and pack them in the ship. And they were immediately ready to be uh, offloaded in barrels when the ship came in. And uh, often, uh, because herring was such a, a prized and valuable commodity in the North Sea, um, the fleets, the herring fleets, were accompanied by the, the navies of respective nations. And so uh, topicality, we always like to slip in a bit of topicality, mm. because at this very moment, Britain and Europe are arguing about fish. And Snyder's was there documenting it 400 years ago. There have always been fish wars. And of course, let's not forget that, um, I hate to go on about religion, but uh, you know, Christ was represented by the fish in the catacombs in the first ever symbol of Jesus was the fish. Mm -hmm. um, so these things are always loaded. And, and, and you know, Soutine painting that you didn't like so much, that's a herring as well. So, you know, we come a full circle. I think what we've certainly done is proved the significance, the importance, the magnitude of the fish in art um, and that's a big success i think good and and just very quickly before we go bottom right in the sniders you can see of course a cat <sighs> which proves my point that all good fish pictures need to have a cat in them well we'll do cats some other time okay but um, on a scale of uh, one to five uh, i'll give it five but uh, let's move on that's quite enough fish for now i think um, time to go to something a little bit lighter in its pleasures that part of the programme where you and I get to imagine where we can have anything, absolutely anything we choose on our wall. 
on the wall. Fun time. Yes, it's on the wall where we get to fill our imaginary museum with great things. Now, Bendor, it's been a bit of a dark podcast so far. We've had forgeries. We've had deadly religious fish. Uh, how are you going to lighten us up with something pleasing now? Well, I, because you so eloquently persuaded me of the merits of having uh, fakes around to keep us honest in our art appreciation. Actually, this week, I've, I've chosen a fake, Baldi. Um, I'm going for uh, the great uh, Han van Meegeren, um, who, as many people will know, uh, was uh, the prolific forger of Vermeer. Um, in Holland in the 1930s and 1940s. And his greatest success, if you like, was to trick Hermann Goering into buying one of his fake Vermeers for a huge price. And Goering, a fat Nazi toad that he was, uh, thought that this painting, uh, Christ with the Adulteress, which he bought in 1942, was one of his masterpieces. And he put it on display for all his Nazi colleagues to, to marvel at. And after the war, uh, when the Dutch authorities discovered that Van Meegeren had sold this Vermeer, they charged him with treason because he'd sold a, a masterpiece of Dutch national art. And of course, uh, the penalty for treason was death. So the only way he could avoid having his head chopped off was to fess up and say, uh, excuse me, I painted it. And at first, because um, the art world in, in the Netherlands had believed all these Vermeers he'd been churning out for about 10 years, they refused to believe him and said, no, he's just lying. So uh, they had this famous trial in which Van Meegeren had to paint in a courtroom, another fake Vermeer to prove that he painted all these ones. And the work I've chosen for my On the Wall um, is his first most successful Vermeer fake, which was uh, The Supper at Emmaus, uh, painted in 1937. It ended up on display in the Museum Boymans in the Netherlands. Uh, it was hailed in the Burlington magazine as, quote, every inch of Vermeer. And the really clever thing that, that Vermeer did is it's actually, uh, nowadays we can recognize it as a terrible painting. But what he, what he cleverly did was he, he spotted the gap in the market because um, when we think of Vermeer today, we think of you know, small jewel paintings of, of Dutch interiors and magical light. But there is one early work, which is enormous in the National Gallery of Scotland, uh, Christ in the House of um, Martha and Mary. And all the experts had assumed that there must be more Vermeers like this out there. And, and Van Meegeren cottoned onto that and he supplied that demand. Very clever, really. So I'm going to have this on my wall um, as my sort of memento mori uh, to remind me um, that we have to be really careful what we look at. And I flatter myself that occasionally I discover the odd painting. Um, and this will uh, warn me to go cautiously um, and always double check everything. Mm. Don't you think, I mean, looking at it at it now, don't you think it's a really bad uh, forgery? I mean, I, I find myself baffled by the Van Meegeren story. I can't see why so many people fell for it. I mean, the forgeries that you had earlier on that you showed me, they were terrific. You can see anybody falling for that. But this, this supposed Vermeer, it's so clunky. It's very un-Vermeer-like. And I have to say that, that I know the painting in Edinburgh, the Christ and uh, the House of Martha and Mary, I mean, that doesn't look very Vermeer-like to me either. I'm sure it's right, um, but uh, it, it, it's, it's not what you think of when you think of Vermeer. So um, I'm just surprised that Van Meegeren got away with it for as long as he did. I, I just think in, in the 
there are much better forgers out there than he ever was, even though he must be the most famous of all of them, isn't he? So how did he get away with it? But uh, I love the story of the Goering, selling stuff to Goering. That, that's really good. But I can also see him, you see, we talked about how devious forgers are. I can also see him when he's having his trial back in after the war's finished. I can just see him talking himself out of the death penalty by admitting to the fact that he did it. I mean, it's a very sort of forger's thing to do, isn't it? It's cunning. It's a sort of cunning way to get out of it, isn't it? Did he actually end up in jail or not? Uh, he was going to serve one year in jail for sort of, you know, fraud, uh, but he died um, of a heart attack just before he could serve his sentence, unfortunately, in 1947. Um, but you do raise a very important point, Maldi, actually. And I, I'm going to claim here that in an episode of Fake of Fortune, I did actually help discover another one of Van Meegeren's forgeries. This was a painting at the Cordon Institute, which was in his collection, but which he had always claimed, even to his dying day, was actually a genuine work. It was a, a Dirk van Berburen of the Procurus. And this painting ended up in the Courtauld. And uh, for a long time, the authorities of the Courtauld couldn't decide if it was fake or not. Um, and in the program, we helped prove that it was, because uh, we discovered that it had been made with Bakelite, which was the ingredient that Van Meegeren used to to harden the paint um but uh you know this this may sound rather arrogant but but i knew and philip knew uh philip mold knew uh, just by looking at the painting initially that it was very very likely to be van Meegeren because it was so like his style and frankly it was terrible but the mm. point you raise is an interesting one because i think all forgers assume something of their time and that goes into their paintings so so Van Meegren's all look a bit like um, illustrations from sort of news magazines in the 1940s and 30s. And I think because the audience at that time was conditioned into thinking that's what figurative art should look like, it helped them to be tricked. And although you say now that the paintings that we mentioned, the, the Franz House, for example, look really obviously uh, like they, they could be real, um, I wonder if in 10 or 20 years' time we might look back and think, God, that looks obviously fake. Look at his haircut. It, he looks just like Harry Styles. And I think it's very difficult when you're in the time to actually step out of what you think uh, is visually correct and make a judgment uh, at that moment. Mm. I'd like to think that these would not have fooled me uh, because they just don't look right. Um, but I know what you mean. I mean, it, it's like if Sean Greenhouse did paint La Bella Principessa, and that's, of course, totally under discussion, but if she really was Sally from the co-op, she would have had that kind of hairstyle and she would have looked like a sort of 1970s girl from the checkout, which which there is about this picture. There is a bit of La Bella Principessa. It is as if the times are in her and she can't get rid of them. So that's perhaps what all experts like yourself have to look out for. You know, is it's not so much the hand of the, the forger yeah. as the the whisper of the era that produced them. Yeah. It's like it's like a costume drama. I mean, when we see the costume, but you know, the latest adaptation of Jane Austen or whatever. We see it on the BBC today and we think, oh, that's really good. But when you look back at the ones they made in the 70s and 80s, you think, bloody hell, look at all those terrible hairstyles. It's always, it's always the hairstyle that gives it away, isn't it? Yeah, uh, there's always that little thing that goes wrong. Well, this is yeah. what forgers play on and prey on, isn't it? It is exactly those kinds of little doubts. I mean, that's yet another reason why I think, despite you know the mailbag I'm going to get because of this, you know, I think they're quite a good thing. I mean, they, they keep us on our toes. And there's never been a time when we didn't need to be on our toes quite as keenly as we do at the moment. Let's get up on our toes and support uh, mm -hmm. the occasional good role of the forger, Bendor. Mm, yeah. Well, I've I've moved on to something a bit 
a bit better, I think. And that is the wonderful Sophonis Baanguisola, who's this Renaissance artist who has recently become more prominent. Feminist art history has rescued her. Um, and she painted this wonderful picture uh, of a game of chess. Now, chess is very much in the air at the moment, Bendor. I'm sure, like everybody else in the entire modern world, you've been watching The Queen's Gambit on Netflix, haven't you? Uh, we tried two episodes. We, did, we couldn't really get into it. Oh. Didn't like it so much. Did you like it? Oh, I, yeah, I thought it was great. I really liked it a lot. Um, it was just interestingly made. But the best thing about it was that it was about chess. Mm. You know, it wasn't about cooking. It wasn't about baking cakes. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't about serial killers. It was about chess. <laughs> you know, the novelty value alone upped it in my estimation. Mm -hmm. But it brought chess into mind. I mean, I, I'm a terrible chess player, but I quite like it. And I like the way that chess has been used over and over and over again in art as a, as a sort of symbol or a metaphor for, for war or conflict. But you don't get that here um, in this Sophonis bout. This is like a beautiful game of chess because it's her, it's her three sisters. She came from a family with she had three sisters and five kids. And, and one of them's playing chess against uh, the younger one. And the very youngest is looking on and smiling. And the, the middle one has just made a move. It's a, it's a sort of family picture about chess as an entertainment with this beautiful sense of um, kinship about it. But looking on... In the right-hand corner is an older figure. This is the nanny or the maid. And she, of course, like all these older women in, in these kinds of pictures, represents the future, doesn't she? I mean, this is what they're all going to turn into. They're all going to grow old. Enjoy your game of chess while you can, because this is what awaits you. So there is this little ripple of symbolism about it. But basically, it's lovely because it shows chess to be something that the family's always done together. So it's like the monopoly of the Renaissance. You know, at Christmas time, instead of playing Monopoly, you got round a table and played chess. I mean, what a superb game that is to have existed all this time, to have been so important for so long. I love it. It's a lovely painting. Um, and we should have a game of chess one day. I think you whoop my ass because um, I I'm too impatient to be any good at chess. No, lousy. I am lousy. I, I wish to be much better than I am. Okay. I can't think more than two moves ahead well that's, i can only think one move ahead as you probably tell from this podcast but um soften is another rock star artist in her day like artemisia gentileschi um and slightly ignored uh, more than slightly ignored over history and before artemisia earlier than artemisia yeah. you know a generation earlier so she was yeah. a pioneer yeah but um i'd love i don't know if you've ever seen um van dyke's portrait drawing of her in his italian sketchbook have you seen that no no tell me when he's in Sicily, he looks um, softened his butt out. In his notebooks, it's the only interview with an artist that he ever records. And he does this beautiful little portrait drawing of her when she's, I think, about 93. And she's almost blind. And he describes how she has to hold pictures up to her nose to look at them. And he notes down all the wisdom that she gave him. And I think that's absolutely a fantastic uh, indication oh. of how important she was. That an artist like Van Dyck, who elsewhere in his notebooks only really pays attention to Titian, went out of his way to pay attention to what Sofonisba Anguissola had to say about painting. Oh, how wonderful. I'm going to look that up straight away. Um, that's a beautiful story, Bender. I thank you for that. And um, that's going to get me looking at Van Dyck again. Um, I hope everybody enjoys looking at Sofonisba too. Um, we've, um, we've talked and talked and talked and talked. We've lined up a game of chess for the future, but I do think that's probably quite enough from me and you, Bender. Certainly from me, from this podcast, it's goodbye. And it's cheerio from me. Waldy and Bendy.